0: So 10 years ago, a wealthy man in America took a treasure chest, I don't know how big it was, took a treasure chest and filled it with gold coins, gold nuggets, and precious gems. And then he hid that treasure chest somewhere in the Rocky Mountains of America, somewhere between Santa Fe, New Mexico to the south, and the border of Canada to the north, which is a distance of about 2,000 kilometers. And he wrote a poem and drew a map, both of which gave hints about where to find it. And over the last 10 years, over 250,000 people have been searching for that treasure chest. They've traveled thousands of kilometers, spent thousands of dollars And this last week, someone found it. It was finally found. Now, think though about those 250,000 people who did not find it, who had spent all that time, all that energy, all those resources to try to find it and came up empty. Now, I have good news for you. There is a treasure That God offers to all of us, which is worth far, far more than a treasure chest full of gold and precious gems. And this treasure that God offers us is easy to find, and it's available to anyone who wants it. Anyone. So, what is that treasure? That's what we're going to see in today's passage in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Let's turn there in our Bibles, and let me give you some background to this passage. John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And he did that by preaching repentance. So he preached, everybody called everybody to repent. Then he baptized Jesus But then right before Jesus started his ministry, John was arrested for calling out Herod for some sin in his life. John was arrested and put in prison. That's the background here. Now, some of John's disciples had gone to John in prison and told him that Jesus was preaching and that Jesus was healing and that Jesus was casting out demons. But this made John wonder, If Jesus really was the Messiah and so in this passage Jesus tells John why he can be sure so let's read these verses starting with verse 18 and let's ask the question how could John the Baptist be sure that Jesus was the Messiah verse 18 the disciples of John reported all these things to him to John the Baptist and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And then when the men, the two disciples, had come to Jesus, they said, as John asked him to, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, why would John wonder if Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, think about it. John earlier had said about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And when Jesus wanted John to baptize him, what John said was, no, you should be baptizing me. So John clearly knew that Jesus was the Messiah. So why now? Why is he wondering now about whether Jesus is the Messiah? This is not an easy Question to answer but here's my opinion. I think it's because while John understood what the Messiah would do He was not clear on the timing of when all these things would happen Now the reason I say that is because of what John had said back in Luke chapter 3 Verses 16 and 17. Look at what Luke said verse 16. John answered them all the crowds saying I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, that's Jesus, he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's a very important statement. Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, the use of the word fire in the next verse, in a context of judgment, shows that these are two different baptisms. Everyone who repents and puts their trust in Jesus will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed into the love of God, the joy of God, the glory of God. The baptism with the Spirit for everyone who repents and trusts Jesus. That's one baptism. But the other baptism is a baptism of fire. Everyone who does not repent and put their trust in Jesus will be immersed into unquenchable fire. Now, when will Jesus do that? When will this baptism with the Spirit and fire take place? Verse 17, the next verse, makes it sound like John's thinking maybe it's going to happen immediately, the moment that Jesus comes. Look at what John says, verse 17. His, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand he's holding that winnowing fork winnowing fork is a tool by which the farmer would separate the wheat from the chaff so his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire now see john might have thought that his job was to call everyone to repent and then jesus would come And he would baptize all those who have repented with the Holy Spirit and cast into hell, baptize into unquenchable fire those who have not repented. And that baptism into unquenchable fire would have included the Romans, which would have relieved all of Israel's political oppression problems. That is, I think, what John had in his mind. Now, here's a picture. Let me show you a picture to show how John might have thought everything was going to unfold in terms of time. So this is a timeline with two lines showing God's kingdom along the top and Satan's kingdom on the bottom. Now, God created the world perfect, but when Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned in Adam and Eve, and we've all sinned after Adam and Eve. And because of sin, God allowed the world to come under Satan's kingdom. God was still sovereign over everything. But God allowed Satan significant rule and reign and influence in the world. Always under God's control, but Satan had great impact deceiving the nations all through the Old Testament. But throughout the Old Testament, God promised, I'm going to send the Messiah who's going to bring my kingdom, my rule, more fully to the earth, fully to the earth. So John might have thought... That as soon as the Messiah came, he would bring God's kingdom, he would destroy, completely destroy Satan's kingdom, baptize believers with the Spirit, separate the wheat and the chaff, taking the wheat believers to heaven and casting the chaff, unbelievers, into the unquenchable fire. And if that's what John thought, then think about it, he would have been puzzled. His disciples come to him, what did, what, what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is is preaching good news, and he's healing lots of people and casting out demons from people. And, And John might have wondered, where's the baptism with the Spirit? Where's the baptism into unquenchable fire? I think that's what gave John some doubts, some questions. Now, let's just pause for a moment here. I want to make sure we don't miss a crucial lesson that we can learn from John the Baptist john the baptist has questions john the baptist has doubts about jesus and and this is something that every follower of jesus will have from time to time but notice that when john has doubts he doesn't keep them to himself he doesn't just kind of pull in he takes them to jesus he asks jesus about them and that's what we should do as well when we have doubts We should bring them to Jesus in prayer. Jesus, I'm I'm wondering about this. I'm, I'm questioning about this. I've got some doubts about this. What's the answer? Help me. And Jesus will always strengthen you. You will emerge from that time of questioning and doubting stronger than ever before, with your roots more firmly just sunk down into the word of God, with more clarity of understanding, more spiritual strength, more closeness to the Lord. It'll be a big win when you bring your doubts and questions to the Lord, and that's what John experienced. He brought his questions to the Lord, sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, and Jesus answers his question. And look at how Jesus answers. Verse 21. In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight, And he answered them, John's disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. Keep that phrase in mind. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Keep that phrase in mind as well. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, John would have immediately heard in those words, he would have recognized that Jesus is referring to a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 42 and chapter 61. The exact same prophecy that Jesus read in the synagogue back in Luke chapter 4. Remember that? Let's read it. Here's Here's Luke 4, 18 through 19. Jesus is standing in front of the synagogue and he enrolls the scroll of Isaiah and here's what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So this isn't, Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's that phrase right there. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. There's that phrase right there. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So John, when John heard the two disciples say, Jesus, the blind are receiving their sight, he's healing them, the poor are having the gospel preached to them, John would have thought, that's right. That's what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. The Messiah will be preaching good news. The Messiah will be healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind. This would have showed John, that's right, Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Isaiah said the Messiah would be doing. And then Jesus' last line, I think would have pierced John's heart. Luke chapter 7, verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus is saying to John, John, I am the Messiah. As you've been saying all along, I am the Messiah. So if if what I'm doing, if the timeline of what I'm doing doesn't fit your timeline, your expectations, trust me. Change your timeline. Trust my timeline. I'm the Messiah. Trust me, John. Don't be offended. Don't stumble over me. Trust me and you'll be blessed. Now, let me just pause again and just bring, bring a little word of application here. During this COVID season, a lot of us have timelines that aren't matching the timeline that God is allowing to take place, Right? Timelines for when we can travel. Timelines for when we're going to find a job. Timelines for when we can go back to work, when we can start seeing each other again, personally, physically. And I think Jesus would say to us today, trust my timeline. My timeline is flawless. I know much better than you what's going to bring me the greatest glory and you the greatest joy in my glory. Trust me. So let's take heart to that. But... John would have been struck and said, yes, Messiah, yes, Jesus. I will trust your timeline. Now, let me give you another picture to show more accurately what God's timeline in Jesus actually was. So again, here's the timeline along the top, the kingdom of God, along the bottom, the kingdom of Satan. Jesus comes to earth, first coming, and he brings God's kingdom satan has been given lots of room up to that point to operate now god's kingdom is here god's kingdom is has begun it is increasing he doesn't destroy all of satan's kingdom yet but he brings god's kingdom and the conflict between god's kingdom and satan's kingdom starts jesus preaches good news jesus heals the sick casts out demons many repent and believe but jesus does not baptize people with the holy spirit until after he dies on the cross, paying for the sins of all who trust him, and after he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. So God's kingdom is here now, pushing back the powers of darkness, pushing back the kingdom of Satan, freeing Satan's captives, advancing the gospel. And Jesus calls all of us his followers. Center your life on trusting Jesus, living for his glory, advancing the gospel. That's what we're here for. Eternity is long. Life is short. Let's advance the gospel for the glory of Jesus. So we're taking the good news of Jesus to men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's our call. That's our marching orders. That's what we're doing. And then, when the gospel has been taken to every nation, tongue, and tribe, Jesus will come again. Matthew 24, 14 says that. And that's when he will completely destroy Satan's kingdom, cast Satan and all of his demons into the unquenchable fire forever, separate the, the wheat from the chaff, gathering all of his people, the wheat, into heaven, and casting all the chaff, the wicked, into unquenchable fire. Okay, so we're asking the question, how could John the Baptist be sure that Jesus really was Messiah and the answer is because Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61 Jesus is preaching good news to the people and he is healing hundreds thousands of people all through Judea Palestine so let me ask you are you sure that Jesus is the Messiah are you sure or do you struggle with that are you like riding the fence Or are you sure? Are you sure that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, that he came to earth 2,000 years ago, that he died on the cross to pay for sin, that he rose again conquering sin and Satan and death, and that he's going to come again? Are you sure that Jesus is the Messiah? If you have doubts, let this strengthen your faith, what Isaiah said in Isaiah 42 and 61. Picture Jesus healing hundreds Thousands of people, paralyzed people, deaf people, blind people, lame people, leprous people, spiritually oppressed by demons people. Picture people healing and freeing thousands of people. What a beautiful sight. And picture Jesus preaching the good news. Forgiveness of sins. A restored relationship with God that gives us such joy in God through Jesus that our hearts are changed and we love our enemies we pray for those who hurt us we care for the the poor the needy the lost who don't know Christ yet see Jesus is the Messiah sent from God and your eternity Your eternal destiny depends upon you seeing that and surrendering your life to him. I plead with you, don't let the sun go down tonight before you have acknowledged that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God in the flesh, sent from God, God here on earth, and that you've surrendered your life to him. Don't let the sun go down until you have acknowledged him and surrendered your life or maybe resurrendered your life. Do that. Now, back to Luke chapter 7. At this point, Jesus turns to the crowds and, and talks about John the Baptist in order to make a crucial point. So let's read verses 24 to 28 and ask, what is Jesus' point in talking about John the Baptist? What's his point? Start with verse 24. When John's messengers had gone... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by wind? So Jesus reminds them, you all flocked out into the wilderness to see John the Baptist. But think about this, he wants them to think about this. What did you go out to see? A reed being blown by the wind? Jesus is probably saying, Did you go out to see John because he was weak, like a reed is blown to and fro by the wind? Did you go out to see him because he was weak? Obviously, the answer is no. That's not why they went out. So he continues in verse 25. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. They're not out in the wilderness. So... You also, you didn't go out to see John because of his fancy clothes. So you didn't go to see him because he was weak. You didn't go to see him because of his fancy clothes. Why did you go out to see him? He wants to press the question. Think about it. Verse 26, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, that's why you went out. Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. He reminds the people that the reason they went out to see John was because they knew he was a prophet sent from God. I mean, think about it from their perspective historically. It had been 400 years since God had sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Prior to that time, regularly God was sending prophets who brought words from God, the word of the Lord. That was very frequent, but for 400 years, it had been silent that would take us back to the 1600s that's a long time so now when israel hears there's a prophet of god out in the wilderness they're all flocking out to hear him that's what jesus is saying you went out to see him because you knew he was a prophet but jesus wants the crowd to understand yes he was a prophet but more than a prophet so in verse 27 he quotes malachi chapter 3 verse 1 To show that john is the prophet god raised up to prepare people for the messiah verse 27 this is he of whom it is written behold i send my messenger before your face before the messiah's face who will prepare your way before you so think about it of all the human beings who'd ever lived only john was the one chosen by god prepare the way for his coming to earth in the person of Jesus the very center of world history Jesus coming God in the flesh came to the earth the Messiah came only John of all human beings only John was chosen to prepare the way for the Messiah and that's why Jesus says what he does at the beginning of verse 28 I tell you he's talking to the crowds among those born of women none is greater than John. That is, of all the human beings who've ever lived, no one has been more honored than John the Baptist because he was raised up to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. But then look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 28. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God And that probably refers to somebody maybe who was just recently saved, who's known Jesus for a week. Maybe a a young child, six years old, who's just come to faith, a lowly child. Maybe a believer who's known the Lord for a while, but has no celebrity status, isn't famous at all. So Jesus says, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, than John the Baptist. Wow. Now think about that. If the one who was least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist, that means that there's a sense in which John the Baptist did not experience the kingdom. Some sense. So how could that be? I mean, John was an Old Testament saint, fully saved by trusting what God would do through the Messiah. He experienced complete forgiveness of sins. He had a restored relationship with God. He knew that in God's presence, there's fullness of joy forever. And and, and John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last one. He was arrested. He was put in jail before seeing the Messiah healing people, before seeing the kingdom coming, demons casting out, seeing the Messiah feeding the 5,000. He was killed before He had a chance to see Jesus dying on the cross before he could see the the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, before seeing the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So John did not experience the coming of God's kingdom in the Messiah. He was imprisoned before that started, and then he was killed. But think about this. Because you are trusting Jesus, you have experienced the coming of the kingdom you've experienced the kingdom of god i mean in the gospels you've seen god has revealed to you shown you the cross that breathtaking display of god's mercy and judgment and salvation the cross jesus dying on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me breathtaking display you've seen that displayed in the gospels you've seen the resurrection displayed in the gospels jesus victorious over sin, Satan, death, alive from the dead. Mm. You've been baptized in the Spirit because you're trusting Jesus. He baptized you with the Holy Spirit. You've been immersed into God's love and presence and goodness and glory. And you know the King. You know King Jesus, your God, your master, your Savior your friend you know Jesus and So because of that because you've experienced the kingdom That's why the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist So that's why the kingdom of God is so valuable That's why it's a treasure worth far more than a treasure chest full of gold and precious gems Jesus point in telling the crowds about John the Baptist is to have them walk away thinking the kingdom of God which Jesus is bringing is great it's of infinite value it's precious beyond words if the least one in the kingdom is more blessed than John the Baptist was oh I want the kingdom I want to be in the kingdom that's Jesus point here now Luke closes by very powerfully asking one last question and answering it. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And he tells us, starting in verse 29, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, even the tax collectors, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him so Luke's point is that there's only two alternatives we either embrace God's purpose for us in sending us Jesus as those did who were baptized by John now for us John's gone We're not baptized by John, but that would mean we see the kingdom. We see the king We turn from everything else. We trust Jesus. We receive him. He's our prize. He's our treasure We're baptized. We're baptized with the spirit. We live to spread his kingdom. That's what it would mean for us today That's one alternative the other alternative is that we reject God's purpose in sending us Jesus, and we rebel against his purpose, like the religious leaders did, the Pharisees, who refused to be baptized by John. Now, at this point, I think Jesus is aware that his listeners might be raising a question, and that is, well, why would the religious leaders not embrace what Jesus, John, say is God's purpose? Maybe Jesus and John are wrong. I mean, if these are the religious leaders who are rejecting John the Baptist and Jesus, shouldn't we listen to them? They're the religious leaders after all. And look at what Jesus says. He answers with an illustration. Verse 31. A little bit difficult to understand this illustration. I'll try to explain it. But look at what he says. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, a lament, a sad song, and you did not weep. So it's like there's one group of children, Jesus, John the Baptist, who want another group of children, the Pharisees, to play with them, to respond, to be baptized, to to trust Christ. So Jesus, John the Baptist, they play happy music for them. The Pharisees, we don't like happy music. Stop that happy music. Okay so Jesus, John the Baptist, try playing. They don't like happy music. Let's play sad music for them. Play sad music for them. Pharisees, we don't want sad music either. We don't like that sad music. Stop that. Why don't these children, why don't the Pharisees respond, play with these other kids? Why don't they be baptized? The problem is not the music. The problem is not with Jesus or John the Baptist. They just are making excuses. They just don't want to respond to John the Baptist and Jesus. That's why, whether it's happy music, whether it's sad music, they don't care about music, they just don't want to respond. The problem is the sin. their hearts and then Jesus goes on to make the same point in verses 33 and 34 for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he is a demon who's gonna live like that unless they're demonized the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say look at him a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners we're not gonna follow him But so, can you see the the contradiction? The Pharisees criticized John the Baptist for not eating and drinking, and they criticized Jesus for eating and drinking, which shows that they're just making excuses, just like the kids in the playground. The problem isn't with John the Baptist or with Jesus, the problem is with the Pharisees. They don't want to surrender their lives to John the Baptist or Jesus. They love their power, they love their money, thank you, they want to resist whatever God's purpose might be for them in John the Baptist and Jesus. And then just Jesus closes with verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That's not an easy phrase to understand, but let me explain what I think it means and why. I noticed that the word justified here Is the exact same Greek word used in verse 29 to describe what those did who declared God just they justified God literally that's the phrase so those who repented of their sins who embraced God's purpose repented of their sins trusted the Messiah they declare God's plan as just they justify God's plan and I think that here in verse 35 Jesus is saying that even though many don't respond Pharisees, religious leaders, even though many don't respond, yet God's plan, God's beautiful plan, wisdom of salvation will be justified, will be declared just by all its children. That is, by all those who repent of their sins who trust in Jesus and who live for God's kingdom, they will come to know God. They will taste the joy of the kingdom. They'll have the treasure of knowing the king and they will say, God's plan is glorious. God's plan is beautiful. Oh, the kingdom is worth everything. Everybody surrender everything to know the king and his kingdom. God's plan, God's wisdom will be justified by all its children, all those who respond. Okay, so I started off. This morning, talking about a man who hid a treasure in the Rocky Mountains in America. But the reality is that the King, Jesus, and the kingdom of God is a treasure worth far, far, far more, far greater value. Because Jesus the King and his kingdom gives you forgiveness of sins. All your sins before God, forgiven, past, Present, future, forgiven, all of them. Amazing. The King, the kingdom restores you into fellowship with God through Jesus. And you will have the joy of knowing Jesus, and that joy will change your heart, fill your heart, satisfy your heart, humble your heart. Make your heart flow out with love for others, your heart will be changed. Listen, it doesn't make any difference if your heart isn't changed now, if you're in spiritual now. The king and the kingdom will change your heart, and you'll have life forever in his presence. This treasure is worth far, far more than any other treasure the world has to offer. This treasure is easy to find, and this treasure is given to everyone, anyone who wants it who wants it more than anything else. It is yours if you want it. Now, this made me think about a a well-known quote by Jim Elliott. Some of you have heard of him, maybe some of you not. Jim Elliott, one of my heroes. A young man who was so gripped by the fact that the Alca Indians in Ecuador had never heard the gospel. He'd heard that some oil explorers had gone into their territory to explore for oil and the alka indians killed them he'd heard all that and jim and five other men took the gospel to the alka indians they landed their plane on a sandbar at a river right next to where they live and the alka indians killed them all but over the next years alka indians came to faith more went in in taking the place of jim elliott and others And even the ones who had killed them came to faith in Christ and repented and were saved. Beautiful, beautiful story. But here's what Jim Elliot wrote in his journal years before. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's talking about the treasure, the treasure, The infinitely valuable treasure of the King, King Jesus, and His kingdom. To enter the kingdom, to be saved by the King, you need to trust Jesus, which includes surrendering everything else in your life to Him. Everything. And you gladly surrender everything to Him because look at the treasure. The treasure of the king and the kingdom is worth it all. And that's why Jim Elliot says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. You surrender everything else to Jesus. You can't keep it. It's not going to satisfy you anyway. It'll be gone when you die, if not before. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The treasure, the king, the kingdom of God, yours forever. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I call you, everybody listening, give up what you can't keep. Give it up. See clearly what's going on. Give it up to gain, to gain Jesus, to gain the kingdom, to gain forgiveness, to gain the joy of God filling your heart, to gain life everlasting, to gain. Forever, let's pray. Father, I ask, like I prayed earlier, that you would use your word to clear up our vision, remove the blindness that can be caused by sin, that can be caused by discouragement, caused by pride, caused by jealousy, or remove the blindness that's over the eyes of our hearts and help us to see this morning, Jesus Christ, you in your glory and the infinite value of your kingdom so that we gladly give up what we cannot keep, give up what won't satisfy us anyway to gain you, Jesus Christ, and your kingdom now and forever. I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name, amen.